0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 23rd, 2021. I almost said 2022. That would have been a a Freudian mistake, given the nature of uh, our show today. Some of you are already in February the 20, uh, December the 24th, uh, so it's Christmas Eve, perhaps in Asia um, uh, and perhaps even in Europe, but still in San Francisco. We're a little bit behind you in time terms, but of course, San Francisco is ahead of the rest of the world when it comes to inventing the future. I don't know who said it, but I'm sure someone did, that the future has or was or is being invented in San Francisco. Uh, probably actually the person who said it was uh neil stevenson the very prolific uh science fiction writer i had stevenson on my show um a month ago some of you may have watched the show and we actually did it in person uh i drove down uh to downtown san francisco and it was a kind of surreal experience because the future has arrived in san francisco The place is full of um Homeless people uh, and Tesla cars and not much else. So it's almost uh, as if Neil Stevenson had invented the very future where uh, he and I talked. He has a new book out called Termination Shock. So it was a bit of a shock. Stevenson, of course, was the guy who um, invented the concept of the metaverse. He came up with the word before Mark Zuckerberg discovered it and renamed his company. And uh, he's the inventor of many other things. Uh, The the idea of cryptocurrency, as I said, he's a a prolific writer. He's also a prolific guy. He um, he worked for Jeff Bezos's uh, uh, space company, Blue Origin, Um, and he also worked for Magic Leap, a head-mounted virtual reality display company. So he's not just a writer but literally an inventor uh, of the future. And he's even the guy behind a corporation called Subotai, uh, which is designed to produce transmedia products based on a common core of IP. In other words, um, interactive uh, text. Um, so Stevenson, no doubt, I'm, I'm sure he's not. he lives in Seattle. He's not wasting his time watching this. But if he was, he'd already be in... 2022, uh, and my guest today is already also in 2022. Is my old friend Larry Downs. He lives in Berkeley, but he lives in the future too. He's one of um, tech's great thinkers. Um, he's a prolific writer. He wrote the first best-selling book about tech back in the 90s, or may even be in the late 80s, uh, and he's the editor of uh, of a wonderfully terse, sharp new book put out by Harvard Business Review called um, The Year in Tech 2022. Larry, is, there, is the future already happened in Berkeley or are you still in 2021?
1: <laughs> the, the, the future never happens in Berkeley. That's one of the uh, the things we like
0: about it. Yeah, uh, I'm in San Francisco, which is a few decades ahead.
1: And I think it was actually Neil Stevenson, or maybe it was William Gibson, who said uh, the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed.
0: Yeah, I think Gibson said that, but I, 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 I think that probably Stevenson and um, uh, and the other guy are, are the same people because uh, <laughs> there's only one or two of these science fiction writers. But I apologize, Larry, for the rather long-winded introduction. The reason I actually brought in Stevenson because. Your introduction to this book, which I've been reading all morning, always very valuable to get Larry Downs's insights into the future, deals with science fiction. Your introduction's title is Business Reality is Rapidly Closing in on Science Fiction. So it wasn't just me going downtown San Francisco to talk to Stevenson. The whole world, according to Larry Downs, at least, is rapidly closing in on science fiction. What do you mean by this, Larry? What's going on?
1: Well, you know and and i appreciated the introduction as well because i am a, a longtime science fiction fan of reader since i was a kid and one of the things that's uh, always appealed to me about science fiction is that in some ways it's not really about the future it's about the current about the present so science fiction writers you know place their stories in other galaxies or other times uh in some ways because that's a very convenient way to talk about current social issues, current political problems, uh, and be able to do it more freely than they would if they were literally talking about, uh, you know, today and now. So you can always sort of think about science fiction. I think um, uh, the, the the critic Frederick Jameson said science fiction is really kind of a, a nostalgia for the
0: present. Uh, and mm. uh, and I think was... he borrowed that from uh, Walter <laughs> Benjamin. <laughs> oh,
1: see, the nobody's, nobody's original for anything anymore.
0: No, And I don't know where Benjamin got it. He turned marks on his head. I think Benjamin really was original.
1: Yeah, great. Well, at least, at least we have a first mover there somewhere. But the idea I had in the the, reading the essays in the book and putting that collection together was, you know, uh, a lot of things that are, are in science fiction are not just, it's not just about the tech. It's not just about, uh the the uh, the interesting uh, gizmos it's really about the ideas and and one of the key ideas i find in in most science fiction is this uh, dichotomy between kind of a utopian future and a dystopian future and in some cases you have the same author uh kind of projecting both like you were describing downtown san francisco uh it's you know the utopia of uh, self-driving teslas and the dystopia of the of the homeless and the and the trash everywhere and I've always been really drawn to that uh, set of, uh, of conflicts uh, because I think, you know, in many ways what technology does is uh, it doesn't really so much create those conflicts as it, it allows them to get uh, exacerbated in both directions at the same time.
0: Your reality, though, uh, at least, uh, Larry, in your intro, is not just social or cultural or political reality. It's business reality. So science fiction is even arriving in the corporate world. It's hard to imagine.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that uh, we would talk about things like virtual reality, artificial intelligence, uh, learning algorithms and machine learning and so on. Uh, These were, uh, if not science fiction, they were certainly uh, highly academic pursuits. And I think it wasn't that long ago that if you went to say the the CEO of a of a you know public company and you said uh, you know your business is going to rely uh, incredibly uh, heavily on artificial intelligence for decision making for data analysis uh, for finding customers for inventing new products, uh, you would have looked like a crazy person. But now you know artificial intelligence is here, and, uh, and business people talk about it as if it was uh, as normal as everything was, and yet, uh, you know, a few years ago, they wouldn't.
0: Well, the, the first interesting essay in in your new collection, Larry, is entitled A Practical Guide to Building Ethical AI. We've been talking a lot about ethical AI. I had uh, Jeanette Winterton on the show recently, wonderful English feminist writer, not really a science fiction writer, but she's written a wonderful book on AI called 12 Bytes: Where We Might Go Next. It's almost a compliment to yours because whereas a lot of uh, radicals, progressives are quite suspicious of tech, uh, Winterton isn't. She still thinks, I think, that AI can save us. Uh, Is there a suggestion in your book that AI is not the dark future that many predict?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I liked about the the essays in this collection is really all of the authors uh, engaged both the pros and cons of the technologies that they were looking at. Now, obviously, because it's focused on business applications, um, which are not necessarily the most, you know, revolutionary uh, uses of some of these technologies, I think we lean pretty heavily on the on the pro side and on the ways in which we can be more efficient or we can you know, better serve or we can lower prices or this sort of thing. But all the authors, including me, uh, do recognize that there are risks. And in fact, in some cases, significant risks to the newest technologies uh, that have to be managed not only by people using them, but by uh, potentially uh, regulators, by potentially the engineers developing them. And that we haven't done a particularly good job of that in the last
0: 20 years. And I think that's... put it mildly. Um, (laughs) Is there something redundant about the word AI, Larry, though? I mean, every tech company is an AI company, aren't they? It's like AI seems to be like a word or a couple of words like the internet, where everything's the internet, everything's the network. And any company that's a tech company, by definition, is an AI company.
1: Yeah, there's a problem there. And we have the same problem with... uh, you know, with crypto tech, you know, every company is a crypto company, because the market got excited about these terms. And so you know, people aren't stupid, if, if the market is buying crypto, or the market is buying AI, then you just rebrand yourself accordingly. But there really is something different about uh, what you know, this term comes from the 1980s, and some really pioneering work that was done well ahead of its time, in the sense that well ahead of when computers could, uh, could, uh, you know, efficiently handle this much processing. But there really was something very different about the early work in artificial intelligence. Uh, it's It has gotten lost uh, in terms but of- you thinking about it, guys it, like Marvin Minsky? Marvin Minsky, exactly. Edward Feigenbaum, uh, people like this, Roger
0: Shank uh, at Yale, yeah. Uh, Larry, I mentioned that you're you in Berkeley. One of your neighbors is uh, certainly an old friend of mine, Ger- uh, Geron Lanier, who- mm-hmm. Many people describe, I'm not sure if he would say this, but he's certainly one of the inventors of virtual reality. I mentioned that Neil Stevenson worked at Magic Leap, Mm -hmm. a a 3D virtual reality company. The second essay in the book is about uh, this one by Gene Meister, about how companies are using virtual reality to develop employee soft skills. Is virtual reality has it become a reality, Larry? It's not just the future anymore, like the Brazilian economy, is it? <laughs> I don't. I, personally,
1: I I would say it's not there yet. Um, it, it's just you know, I, I, one measure I think for me about virtual reality is can I put on one of those headsets without getting sick?
0: And the answer is no, uh, not sick yet. Sick because you're embarrassed by it, or sick because <laughs> they they make you feel like you're on an aircraft or a yeah, just the motion, uh,
1: the motion, the motion sickness which is a feature of you know, latency and, and lack of uh, frame rates and all the other technical things that go into virtual reality, it's getting there. And there are certainly applications now, very simple ones, I think, where it can be useful. But as far as you know, an explosive uh, uh, set of applications, uh, we're probably still a few years out from that.
0: Larry, you've been on the show many times. You were on when the show was on TechCrunch um and i had recently dr eric Topol, one of one of america's great wise men on on covid and on on medicine he was on the show he he came on last week 10 years ago he was also on my TechCrunch show talking about uh the destruction of medicine and the op- the entrepreneurial opportunities in medical technology and medical startups or what he called limitless he still says they're limitless you have um Uh, a a chapter in the book on the future of digital health tools. And interestingly enough, rather than looking at America as Topol does, you suggest the future may be in Germany of all places. What's happening in Germany when it comes to digital health tools?
1: Well, you know, of course, and I'm not the author of that particular essay, but I think one of the the interesting things that the the pandemic has taught us, uh, you know, many lessons, most of them painful lessons, but... Uh, one of the things that's taught us is how, uh, in fact, it's not tech that is often the limit on, uh, on what we can and can't do. It's sort of, you know, kind of human inertia, regulatory inertia. So before the pandemic in this country, as well as in Europe and particularly in Germany, there were all kinds of uh, restrictions and regulations on telehealth, on whether or not, for example, if you saw your practitioner uh, over a, a Internet connection instead of in person, would your insurance pay for that? And if you're in one location in one state in the US and they're in another state, uh, can they still interact with you without violating you know, various licensing laws? Well, when the pandemic made it impossible uh, in, in many senses to go see the doctor, uh, we adapted. And we said, well, okay, we're gonna at least temporarily ease a lot of these restrictions so that people can get healthcare of any kind. And of course, what we found was, you know, it's not perfect by any stretch and it still has a lot of work to do, but there was a lot of stuff we could already do with telehealth that we weren't doing um, and not because of technical reasons and not frankly because of of uh, protecting the patients, uh, just because of inertia and a lot of vested interests that didn't wanna see change in an industry that we know is uh, very, very inefficient and very troubled.
0: Larry, uh, that of course uh, has been both the cause and effect of, of COVID. Yeah. Uh, Lots of talk in our year of COVID about the workplace. We did a show about how to manage fear in the workplace. The real question, I guess, for you is, is there going to be a workplace in the future, or are we just all going to be working from home?
1: Well, you know, it depends on what day you ask me that. I I think most of the time I would say, no, of course, we're going back to more traditional workplaces uh, eventually. But at the same time, I don't think they're going to look like they did before the pandemic. And I don't mean to say, you know, we won't have offices, but we are already moving to very different kind of working environments, more sort of transient, more hoteling, uh, you know, more open in terms of the architectural and and physical design of these spaces, Uh, obviously more casual. We were, you know, we'd already given up the suits and ties for the most part in most industries. And uh, yeah, again, you didn't I wear think... a
0: suit and tie for this, Larry, did you?
1: No, I'm at home. I'm disappointed. I can go change if you want.
0: Um, well, not but... on camera.
1: <laughs> but look, uh, you know, the reality is we found, again, there was a lot more we could do without the offices than we thought. Uh, again, it wasn't perfect at all. It was, in many ways, quite terrible. In virtual
0: reality, though, going to play a role here? Uh, we had the technology writer, a very good one, David Kushner, on the show recently, talking about how virtual reality is, we, we already talked about this, but could virtual reality become the way in which we replace the, the workplace? We're also used now to Zoom meetings yeah. and this kind of interaction it wouldn't take a lot for virtual reality to replace physical reality in the workplace, would it?
1: I think it would. I think it would take a lot. Uh, and a lot um, particularly, and I think the, the word I always use to describe that is, is bandwidth. And I don't mean that in the in the technical sense, but I mean, when you're interacting with another person in real time, you're engaging all your senses. There's all kinds of conscious and unconscious cues going on uh and lots of things and and yes eventually we can get the technology we can get enough throughput of stuff happening that you'll feel it you'll smell it you'll sense it Um, but we are nowhere near there now i think you know the best virtual reality can do is kind of give us a sense of 3d space in the physical sense but it does not give us many of the things that as human beings we've evolved very highly to be able to read each other. That's been central to our survival as a
0: species. VR can't do that now. Well, maybe it'll be able to do it by 2031. We are talking with Larry Downs, the editor of the Year in Tech 2022, a Harvard Business Review book. Nice, slim volume, easy to read, easy to digest. Uh, Larry is also a contributor. He wrote the introduction. I'm going to take a, a brief break, Larry. And when we come back, I want to talk Silicon Valley. I want to talk space. And I want to talk race. uh, When it comes to tech. So we'll be back in about uh, 60 seconds. Hold on, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube YouTube Page. So, whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with my old friend Larry Downs, the editor, and as well as a contributor to the Year in Tech 2022, uh, a, a nice volume put out by the Harvard. Uh, Is it, the Harvard Business Review on the future of technology, the year of 2021 and imagining the future. I mentioned at the beginning of this show, uh, my interview with Neil Stevenson. Neil um, worked for a while for Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, and you have, um, uh, Larry, in the book, um, an essay on space travel. You suggest, or your two authors suggest, that the commercial space age is here. Here we have the image of Bezos. Musk is his co-conspirator. According to this piece, a revolutionary private space entrepreneur and the CEO of SpaceX. Um, Is the commercial space age here, Larry, or is this more hype? Uh,
1: No, I I think it is here. Um, Certainly plenty of hype. and, And obviously, these people are experts in hype. But no, we actually have now a commercial space industry. And again, what it demonstrates is not that uh, the tech uh, was the hard part. The hard part was kind of wresting it away from the monopoly that governments had uh, over space technology, which in the early days made perfect sense. But over the last several decades, as governments really, especially the U.S. So you trust
0: Africa, Bezos and Musk more than you trust NASA, Larry? And it's not saying a lot, but yeah. Especially when it. it comes to uh, annoying aliens inviting attack from out of space, I'm I'm not so keen. I have to admit on trusting trusting the universe to Musk or Bezos. No, I'm not either. But I less, unfortunately, I'm less trusting of NASA. <laughs> Why? Because they're incompetent.
1: Because their track their track record speaks for itself.
0: Well, Larry is. Uh, I don't have many libertarian friends, but he's one libertarian friend I do have. You're a mild libertarian, Larry. You still believe in some government,
1: right? <laughs> By all means. I'm, I don't describe myself as a libertarian. I'm a well,
0: libertarian. You, there, there is a section in all seriousness about regulation and Silicon yeah. Valley. We've had so many shows on that. We, of course, had Dave Eggers on the show. His new book, The Every, is another dystopian take on Silicon Valley and big tech. Um, we had a woman called um male um, Gave on the show who is a contributor um in in the book. Is Silicon Valley over? Is the party finished, Larry? Finally? <laughs> no, no, the,
1: the the cork's not even out of the bottle yet, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, look, uh, you know, as you know, Andrew, I've spent a good deal of the last decades sort of shuttling back and forth between Silicon Valley and Washington trying to bridge the communications gap, uh, which I blame both parties equally, by the way, for that gap. And I've been a complete and utter failure in that regard. The, uh, the the Silicon Valley has done a terrible job of communicating. Washington has done a terrible job of trying to communicate. The result is now this years long uh, tech lash uh, that spilled over into you know consumer confidence and consumer behavior as well talk about that in the book, the lack of uh, trust in Silicon Valley. I think it's correct. I, I don't trust them as much as I perhaps would have 10 years ago either. All of this was avoidable, uh, but I don't think it's, uh, its you know, the end of the world either. I think... Uh, You know, these issues will get resolved, just not the way they should have and not in the time frame they should have.
0: I I mentioned that uh, we had uh, one of your contributors is Maelle Gavea. I think she's a a New York City based uh, French startup entrepreneur. She has an essay, What's Next for Silicon Valley? And she came on the show to talk about this. Uh, There's another essay um, in your book about self-regulation. Is this the next big political thing in Silicon Valley, self-regulation? It sounds like Mark Zuckerberg smiling at the camera, saying he's going to self-regulate and doing absolutely nothing.
1: Well, that's that's certainly been the experience so far. I mean, self-regulation is not new terminology by any stretch. We've been talking about it uh, for a very long time. And very little, if anything, has actually happened that you could point to positively some small steps Uh, The problem, though, I think is, uh, at least in the United States, and it's very different than Europe, uh, is that our regulators seem unable to regulate. So even if self-regulation isn't the answer or isn't happening fast enough, what's the alternative? Well, the
0: alternative might be, Larry, um, regulation by the intermediary organizations that are key anyway. We had um, Jeremy Weinstein, one a, one, quite a distinguished Stanford professor. He's one of the three authors of a new book on tech about Stanford regulating or self-regulating their teaching mm-hmm. of entrepreneurs. Is that how it's going to happen through universities like Stanford and other organizations that are um, committed to... Rethinking or re educating people on this stuff? Well, it may. if it does, that's sort of happening by default, right? You know,
1: in the US, Congress can't pass anything, tech or otherwise. Now, as I started to say, Europe, it's very different, right? We have seen a lot of yeah. uh, aggressive moves in Europe, and it may be that, that uh, we all become regulated by European standards by default because there is no other set of standards. And in trying to comply, with uh, various rulings and various uh, statutes in in the EU uh, may maybe the tech becomes regulated
0: worldwide based on that set of standards. One achievement of the book, Larry, is you didn't have a piece on crypto. We've had too many shows on crypto. We had uh, Ethan Lau, for example, on crypto and the Bitcoin boom. It was an original book, but it's not a very original subject. Why did you not have an essay on crypto?
1: Well, we do have one on blockchain, of course, which is one of the uh, the, the the actually
0: useful technology. Yeah, but it's building sure. a transparent supply chain, which is very businessy.
1: Well, it is a business book, and actually, as we've now seen,
0: well, no, uh, I'm not criticizing. I'm applauding the fact that you don't have anything on Bitcoin or crypto.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's because. Custom- do you <laughs> think it's because <laughs> it's, just, it's
0: just more hype, more, you uf- crazy euphoria, irrational exuberance.
1: A lot of it, of course, I mean, you know, this goes back, you know, a couple books earlier, my book on what I call Big Bang Disruption. Uh, This is the case with all new technologies. Uh, They start off, you know, with all the hype and all the startups and all the money. And after a while, you kind of get down to the point where you realize, all right, who are the real people here doing something interesting and what are the actual beneficial applications? We're certainly in the, the Big Bang phase. of uh, of crypto and what it looks like when the crunch comes, when we actually sort it out, nobody could say. But I think there's something there, yeah.
0: There's always something there, Larry. What about, um, you don't have anything on crypto or Bitcoin, but you do have a chapter on quantum computing, Mm -hmm. suggesting that we need to get ready for this. Is this for real? It's, again, something we've been hearing about for years.
1: Yeah, so uh, quantum, I, I again put this in the category of uh you know not quite ready for prime time along with with vr Uh, we certainly are seeing you know commercial products starting to be developed and they do have the potential to greatly improve the speed and efficiency uh, and processing capability of traditional you know von neumann architecture computing uh so it's very exciting and i think it will be here what
0: i don't know is when well, two themes that you talk about in the book, I, I have to admit, I didn't expect to pop up. Firstly, race. You have mm-hmm. an essay, What's It Like to Be a, a Black Man in Tech? We've done so many shows on uh, race and racial identity in America. We had Maisha Cherry, for mm-hmm. example, was on anger as a tool for defeating racism. Um, does this essay suggest that, uh, that a lot of angry or not that many angry black men in tech because not many of them are employed. What is it like to be a black man in tech? What does the essay suggest?
1: Yeah, and again, I, you know, I, I love that piece because it was very personal. It was not trying to, you know, it was not... I had
0: to Ron Barton.
1: Yeah, and and it taught me a lot. I mean, obviously it's anecdotal. So I you, I don't know how much, you know, you would abstract from that and say, this is what it's like for everybody. But certainly it painted a very vivid and a very dire picture of what it was like uh for at least one person and i'm sure uh that uh, there's there's a lot of it and it's not just obviously race it's also uh gender and and you know other minority uh statuses uh tech like other industries but perhaps more so uh, is really not inclusive uh it isn't particularly uh, equitable uh, and it, it happens in ways that are not the obvious ones, not just about salary and hiring and, you know, where you went to school and so on, but in these very subtle ways as well uh, that are even harder to root
0: out and solve. Well, I applaud you for putting for that, that kind of essay in because often these kinds of essays and issues are actually ignored uh, in volumes of uh, books on business. Uh, 2021 has been the year, of course, of covid the year of Black Lives Matter, and the year it seems as if when global warming became mm. the key issue around the world. Um, again, we've had many, many shows on uh, on 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 uh, the the environmental crisis. That the final essay in your book is on green software. How essential is this, and how much do you believe that this is going to change? uh the tech industry and the tech future
1: yeah so look what are the problems obviously and 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 we can talk about it in terms of crypto because crypto is obviously not a particularly green technology the way to put it you,
0: mildly to put it politely right
1: you, you waste you essentially waste energy you waste resources that's the way in which you create uh cryptocurrency um it, it seems very you know against the grain uh, so I think it's important, you know, and, and and you know, Silicon Valley, again, it's done a decent job, uh, maybe better than some industries, maybe worse than others, in acknowledging that it you know uses resources, it creates pollution, particularly of uh, of you know heavy metals and 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 other really nasty pollutants, not, maybe not as bad as nuclear power, but uh, still not very good. Um, so th- I think there is an appreciation, uh, at, at least uh, that uh, that there you know one of the texts that ought to be applied is, is tech to improve uh, the sustainability uh, of our of our digital technologies, and uh, you know we can only applaud that.
0: Well, those were the easy bits, Larry. Now you're going to end with two two hard questions. Firstly, when historians look back, tech historians like yourself look back at 2021. Say in 2051, hmm. is there anything in particular that will strike their fancy? One. <laughs>
1: If I'm looking back at anything in 2051,
0: I'm going to be really... I'm not saying you, but somebody else, someone who who has become the Larry Downs of the future. Maybe you'll become virtual. Um, (laughs) What is the most important tech event of 2021?
1: Well, I think clearly the pandemic. Um, It it wasn't a technology so much, but it obviously generated so much innovation. A lot of it necessitated, uh, including in the virus itself and the vaccines, but also in the way we work and the. I mean, it was one of these great disruptors that I've talked about that you don't see coming uh, that, you know, has a lot of negative side effects. But here it had some, you know, again, silver linings, a lot of really positive developments and and taught us not so much uh, the answers to these questions, but that there were better ways to do things that we were resisting for a variety of unrelated reasons.
0: Yeah, we had a lot of shows on that. We even had the journalist Brendan Burrell on... Mm -hmm the the inside story or his inside story of how, how much of America, a miracle Operation Warp Speed, if there wasn't so much sort of hostility to Trump, I think Operation Warp Speed would be treated more heroically. But it has been a remarkable achievement of science. And I guess the mm-hmm. other great story of 2021 is how politicized science is. Talk to Eric Topol about that, the way he and Tony Fauci and others have become these intensely politicized figures, even though um they're not interested really in politics. So that I, I, I think that's an important point is twenty twenty one will be seen probably as a heroic year in tech and science. Mm. And finally, Larry, uh what what one thing should we really look forward to in twenty twenty two when it comes to tech? And don't say crypto. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I don't know, uh, is the short
1: answer. I think the things, you know, what what I'm going to most look to is what you asked me out earlier, which is how does this affect the workplace? Again, you know, principally, uh, I'm interested in tech for business. Uh, and I've been waiting for years for an event like this to really, uh, you know, kind of explore. You've been waiting
0: for years for COVID?
1: No, for for something that would force us, however, to really look at the way we organize businesses and the hierarchies and the ways in which people are managed and say, you know, does any of this make sense? Uh, what would be better? And I think, you know, we've had a, a taste of that, uh, in some ways an unfortunate one, but, uh, you know, I think now the cat's out of the bag and we're going to ask some much bigger questions.
0: The cat is out of the bag. Um, as I was talking to someone earlier, they talked about skinning the cat. Um, You and I, Larry, have lived through Web 2.0. We survived Web 2.0. Could 2021 be the year of Web 3? Or is that just more hype, more meaningless techno garbage speak?
1: Yeah, so far, techno garbage hype. (laughs) Um.
0: Well, Larry, as always, Larry Downs, he tells the truth. He doesn't mess around, he's ubiquitous, he's the author of many best-selling books, he is the editor and contributor to Harvard Business Reviews, The Year in Tech 22, he's one of the few people in Silicon Valley who tells the truth, he doesn't exaggerate, uh, but he doesn't underestimate either. Larry, Happy New Year, and we got to go back to our regular walks in a, in a post-COVID world. Keep well, I'm pleased that you're looking so well good luck with your house renovations in 2022 and we will no doubt speak in the new year thank you again thank you andrew thanks so much for watching this keen on show i hope you were inspired in some way i hope you found it interesting and if you want more of these kinds of shows you need to subscribe uh to the podcast uh on the apple or or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keenan show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, Uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which i need to talk about so thanks so much again for for, for watching keen On. i'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and i'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future